You can uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. Sergio just read for us. This is our last sermon in our series on Abraham. We're going to move into Holy Week and then on to something else. And I'm going to miss him. I've learned a lot from Abraham. I've been challenged. I've been challenged by the life of Abraham, our forefather in the faith. I hope you have too. And there is yet one great test left for him, which we will consider today. Let me ask for God's help as we turn to Genesis 22. Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly come before your word and we ask as we always do that you would speak by your spirit through your word to build up your people for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis married late in life. And his happiness was short-lived. Joy Davidman, his bride, would die of cancer just four years after their wedding. Lewis was devastated. He processes his loss and how it affected his relationship with God with striking honesty in his little book, A Grief Observed. In it, he explains that there were instances along the way in the marriage when, when it seemed that their prayers were going to be answered and that God was going to heal joy of cancer but only for it to return. He writes, time after time, when God seemed most gracious, he was really preparing for the next torture. This long-awaited gift of marital bliss was given only to be snatched away. Lewis groans, Oh God, God, why did you take such trouble to force this creature out of its shell if it is now doomed to crawl back, to be sucked back into it. It is perhaps an experience we'd rather not talk about. This fact that sometimes it seems that God very carefully opens our hearts only to hurt them. Sometimes God's ways with us in the present seem to go against his previously stated plans to help us and save us. Abraham must have been thinking or feeling something like this when in Genesis 22, God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. After all these painful years of waiting, after all this building tension, after all this hoping, Isaac had finally come. The miracle had happened. Sarah and Abraham in their old age had tenderly and vulnerably, somehow by God's grace, not closed their hearts off entirely to hope. And hope had been realized in the birth of this son. Who would have thought? And only now for this terrifying command to come. And for it to come seemingly out of nowhere. 
verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's one of the most memorable and yet challenging events in the Bible, Genesis 22. And it's really the last major happening between Abraham and God in Abraham's life. In the next chapter, Genesis 23, Sarah will be laid to rest. And then in Genesis 25, Abraham will be buried alongside her. But to culminate this life of faith, the old man must face this, his greatest test. And it is a test. Moses, our narrator, wants the reader to know this at the outset, and it's no accident. Verse 1, God tested Abraham. Abraham doesn't know it's a test, but it's important that we do. And this is a crucial note because it sets boundaries around the tension in the passage. It lets the reader know that God's not planning on ending Isaac's life. There will be no child sacrifice here. Instead, this is a test. And of course, a a later Israelite reading this, they would know from God's own law that God abhors and forbids child sacrifice, which sadly was practiced by the Canaanites and those who lived around Abraham. There's also the fact in this passage that Abraham somehow seems convinced that he's coming home with Isaac. He tells the accompanying servants in verse 5, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. The two, Abraham is saying, both of us, are going to come back. And the writer of Hebrews will go so far as to tell us that Abraham's faith had grown so strong that he even believed that if he'd lost Isaac, he would receive him back in a resurrection. Hebrews 11, picking up at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Confident that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And then there's also the fact that the whole context of this, and this is important, the whole context is worship. God's not asking Abraham to murder his son or destroy him. He's saying, Offer him up to me as a burnt offering. Violent, terrifying, yes. But as you read the passage, you start to realize that what God is doing is saying to Abraham, are you willing to give Isaac back to me? Not to commit him to oblivion, but God will say, you did not withhold your son, not from death, you you did not withhold your son, verse 14, from me. So there... There's several angles upon which to see this passage that, that suggests there's more going on here than meets the eye. This is not about child sacrifice. It's not about God being a monster. There's something deeper going on. 
But having said that, it still doesn't relieve the tension and it's not supposed to relieve it entirely. God is still testing Abraham in an unimaginable, even incomprehensible way. And Abraham obeys. There's no talking back. There's no dialogue. Verse 3, he raises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He cuts wood. Think of the man with the axe cutting the wood, the foreshadowing of the sacrifice. He bundles up the wood and he goes. And he even comes to the point, right up to the edge of doing it. He binds Isaac. He grasps the knife. He lifts his hand. You can see the camera zoom in. You can see his knuckles turn white. His hand shaking, about to plunge it down. And only then, verse 14, the angel intervenes. The angel cries out from heaven. Now, often in the Old Testament, when angels interact with humans, they come down. They take the time to... Walk to the person. Not here, it's too urgent. The angel cries out from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Verse 12, the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. For many, this passage raises impossible questions. Questions of ethics, of fairness, of God going too far. And as I've pondered it this week, I've found that a passage like this, with all the questions it raises for me, places me in a somewhat Job-like scenario. It, it's like where Job at the end of his own irrational and mystifying suffering with all his questions, finds them all simply confronted and overshadowed by the grandeur of God, who simply says to Job, we read, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me, where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. A passage like Genesis 22, some people think it's a theodicy. A theodicy means somewhere where we can't understand that God could do something bad. Really, it's a revelation of who God actually is. Genesis 22 reminds us that God is not a flickering candle that we can snuff out when we don't understand him or don't like him. God is an all-consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews says, before whom we must bow. So it's with humility and reverence, reverence that we must ask when we come to this passage, what is God saying to Abraham and what is he saying to us through this, the greatest of trials that the man of faith will face? What does this tell us about Abraham? What does it tell us about God? There are really two themes that arise in our passage. Theme one, God tests faith right out of the gate. This is what this is about. God tests faith. But as the test unfolds, a second theme will arise. And that is 
God provides. God provides for those he tests. You could put it all in a sentence like this. The point of the passage, God tests his people to prove to them that he provides. So let's just look at these two themes. First, God tests faith. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. This is the first time in the Bible that the theme of testing arises, but it's not the last. As you read on, God will in various ways, in various times, test his people. The psalmist will actually go so far as to say, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Being tested by God, it's, it's not like taking a written exam. You know, an exam on like the Westminster Confession or something like that to see how much you know. It's, it's more like a piece of metal being put in fire. And in the heat, the quality of the metal is revealed for what it is. But also by the heat, it's softened in such a way that it can be refined and reshaped. So the testing of God is never to destroy his people, it's to, it's to reveal and refashion them. And what is this testing like exactly? Let's just make a few observations from our passage about what God's testing is like. First, notice that God is testing Abraham. He's not testing a Canaanite, Hittite. He's not testing a Philistine. He's not testing an atheist. He's not testing an agnostic. He is testing a person of faith. God tests his people. You see, God deals differently with believers than non-believers. So if you're not a Christian and you wonder, might God be at work in my life? He might be. He might be working to convict you um, that you need something more, that something's off. He could be working to harden you. Sometimes if you resist God for a long time in the Bible, he kind of turns a person over. Kind of scary, right? But if you're not walking with God, he is not testing you. His testing is reserved for his children who have come to him because it's a form of his wise and tender and loving care. In God's testing, what you realize is he is committed to doing a profoundly deep work in your life. Now, this is worth paying attention to because it means if you decide to obey God in an area of your life, I don't know, relationships, dating, work, something like that, you will run out after God and you may suddenly realize that you face more headwinds than your friends who aren't obeying God. And you think, this doesn't make sense. I thought it would be the opposite. But you see, what may be happening to you is you're on a double curriculum right now, the world's curriculum on the one hand, but deeper than that, God is now committing himself to you to fit you for himself. So that's the first thing to notice. God tests his people. Second, consider that God tests again and again, more than once. Some people think that Abraham was tested 10 times, and this is the 10th and the culminating test. However we tally up the events of his life, it's clear that God tests Abraham more than once and in more than one way. Third, notice that this testing happens 
through a real life experience, it would not have been enough for Abraham to simply verbally agree. Right? God tells him to sacrifice his son and in verse 3 he says, okay, I'll do it. And God says, well, I'm glad we got that clear. It doesn't work that way. Remember Peter? Peter passes the oral exam. Jesus says, everyone's going to forsake me. And Peter says boldly, he passes the oral test. I will never leave you. And then when the experience happens, something is revealed about Peter that he simply could not have known outside of the experience. So the testing of God will always move out of the classroom into the fires of real life. Fourth, God's testing reaches towards what we love most, Isaac. Think of verse 2. God says to Abraham, take your son. You can picture Abraham saying, I have two, Ishmael and Isaac. Your only son. Well, technically, they're both only sons. One's the only son of Hagar, the other's the only son of Sarah. No, your only son whom you love, I love both of them, Isaac. And, you, I mean, not Isaac. Not Isaac. God, this will, this will destroy Sarah. Not Isaac. It, it seems that for the believing community, for us, we are meant to see at least some type of metaphor in Isaac for anyone or anything that is particularly valuable to us, that, that somehow God's testing will at some point reach into that. Fifth, and most difficult, God's testing may involve God-forsakenness. Isaac represents more than a natural son. He represents more than just the height of earthly gifts. Isaac represents the future. Don't you see? All the promises of everything God's claimed to do run through Isaac. And back in Genesis 12, Abraham was asked to lose his past. Leave your home, your kin, and your family. He had to lose his past. But now in Genesis 22, God's asking him to lose his future. And, and Isaac represents for Abraham in a concrete way God's faithfulness, God's goodness. God's stated plan was Isaac. For God to take Isaac was for God to contradict God. One commentator notes, and I think this is very insightful, that this experience must have conjured up for the people of God throughout history. You can think of Israelites in slavery in Egypt. You can think of Israelites living in Babylonian captivity. You can think of the Christians being persecuted. It conjures up these times, the person writes, where it seems that the Lord at times will contradict himself. He appears to want to remove the salvation begun by himself from history. Think of the cross. Think of Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abraham is being walked into a path where he will feel a level of God forsakenness. It seems God has led Abraham to Golgotha. Now, why does God do this? Abraham, it's not like he hasn't been through enough already. 
And he's near the end of his life. He's old. I mean, he's been old the whole time, but he's really old now. And he, Isaac has been born, right? Everything now runs through Isaac. Couldn't the man retire and couldn't God turn his attention to Isaac? Why does God do this? You know, I was thinking, um, I'm going to answer that question, why God tests. But I, I was thinking as I was working on this sermon about how do I think God tests a church? And I went back and I watched this video from our church from 2012. Some of you may not know this, but this church um, faced this test about whether or not it would be faithful to the Bible or be beholden to public prestige. And it lost everything. And I think the church, I mean, I wasn't the rector at the time, was praying that it would keep everything, Right. It seemed to do everything right, and it lost everything. I mean, everything. And I was watching this final service, and people were just praising God. And I thought, man, we were tested. But I also thought, That's, that may not be the only test. And then I wondered, how have we been tested in the last few years? How, how have we been tested in terms of pressure to love people who differ from us? I thought, how have I been tested in interpersonal relationships? Friends, how might God test you? How might he test us? These are important questions to keep in mind. So why does he do it? Why does God test us? Well, for one, certainly God forms us through testing. Many people only really ever learn how to pray in the fire. And many people only ever really learn how to actually live upon the word of God, not just skim it when they're in a radical trial. It is simply the case that so much of what matters in the life of a Christian is often formed in a test. So God forms us in testing. He also, in testing, reveals us to us. He reveals ourselves to ourselves. We see this with Abraham because in verse 14, the angel finally says, now I know you fear me. Now, it's not like God doesn't know everything about us right now. Right? So he doesn't really need to test us to have his own epiphany. But it seems like along with forming us by testing us, God wants us to get, our, get to know ourselves. You know, it's an interesting question. Do you trust yourself? Or how well do you really know you? I mean, given the right circumstances this week, the right pressure, the right temptation, can you trust yourself to actually live up to your own standards? Um, how well can your family trust you? How well can your church brothers and sisters trust you? How well do you really know yourself? How would you get to know yourself? Do you know how? Through God revealing it to you through a test. Charles Spurgeon explains the positive elements of God's testing. Abraham, he says, do you not think that it did Abraham great good in assuring his own heart and enabling him to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he really did fear and love God. Would it not be worthwhile, the preacher goes on, to pass through some tremendous trouble to get that settled once and for all? I do not think that the Lord gives some of his people, excuse me, I do think that the Lord gives some of his people full assuring tribulations. Really interesting phrase. So that when once these are passed, all doubting and fearing are at an end. There are people in our church family 
who, when it comes to enduring trials and tests, have, figuratively speaking, killed a lion. I mean, some of you really have faced the beast. And what I want you to know is that I'm really glad you're here because we need you. It's like you're, you're tried and tested, right? FDA approved. All the car manufacturers have put you through all these accidents. And we're like, this woman is safe. Of course, of course, it doesn't make us proud. Of course, we can still doubt ourselves. But friends, we need people who have that tried and tested faith. So I'm glad you're here. I know it probably hasn't been easy, but I want you to know we need you and we will need you in days ahead. So God tests us to form us. He tests us to reveal ourselves to ourselves so we can know what we're working with. But there's more. God tests us not only to reveal who we are, the driving point of this passage becomes the fact that God tests us to reveal who he is. It is on the mountain of testing that God reveals the main point of this passage. And the main point is this. God will provide. God himself, Abraham says, will provide. So this is our second major theme. God tests our faith so that in the testing, God can prove to us, not theoretically, experientially, he can prove to us, I will provide. Three times in our passage, the notion of God's provision is stated. In verse 8, which may be one of the, the most important passages in the Bible. I feel like I say things like that every Sunday. But this really, you'll, you'll see. In verse 7, Isaac says, he, trembling, he says to his father, I see the fire, I see the knife. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And in verse 8, Abraham speaks, speaks like a prophet. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. See the word provide? Next, after the angel stops Abraham, he looks up, he sees a ram caught in a thicket, he sacrifices it instead of Isaac, and we read in verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, remember how important naming is, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The King James Version, if you have one, it translates, it's Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And then Moses adds for rhetorical flourish this little datum about what's happening in Israel this time. Verse 24, the second half, excuse me, verse 14, the second half, Moses says, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This became a mantra in Israel. Maybe this was an early form of a bumper sticker you could put on your chariot. It's just what people started to say, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And so what God is saying in this test, he's saying that the Lord tests our faith to prove to us that he provides. But I want us to notice how he provides and what exactly it is that he provides. This passage, God provides a lot of things. Each morning he'll provide new mercies for you for whatever trial you're in. But this passage foreshadows the the provision behind and beneath all the provisions, meeting the need beneath all our needs. It foreshadows the most significant event in the Bible, and in doing so, it bears witness to just how far God will go to provide for his people. 
I'm going I'm to sketch this. This is, this is an image that I hope starts to become clear to you that we're meant to see here, although in a mirror dimly. I'm going to sketch the image of what God's telling us here and see if you can see it. I'll, I'll, I'll draw out certain contours from themes in the passage. So first consider the mountain. It's Mount Moriah. For an Israelite hearing this story later, the location of Moriah would immediately signal one thing. The temple in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 3.1, we read that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Abraham's not just going up any old hill in the Middle East. He's ascending the mountain of the Lord to the very place where Israel will gather again and again to make their sacrifices and where God's own son will ascend at the culmination of his ministry. Think of Isaac and the wood. How might an Israelite have thought about Isaac in this passage? They, wouldn't, they couldn't have helped but seen themselves in Isaac. I mean, Isaac literally represents the future of Israel. In his body is their seed. They would see themselves quite literally hanging in the balance on this altar. And then think of Isaac carrying the wood on his back. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac. Here this man is representing God's people, lugging this wood up the mountain. One Jewish commentator, writing perhaps around the time of Jesus, he said, and this is a Jewish writer, not a Christian writer, he said, Isaac with the wood was like a condemned man carrying his cross. We can hardly not picture Jesus who in John 19 went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha, which happens to be the very same mount. Then there's the lamb. Are you starting to see the picture? In verse 8, Abraham speaks probably more prophetically than he even knows. God will provide for himself a lamb. And this is precisely what happens. The ram caught in the thicket. God provides a substitute to die so Isaac, his people, can live. Throughout the Old Testament, God is preparing people to see and understand the gospel. This profound plan God has to uphold both perfect justice and extend complete mercy to the sinful seed of Adam and Eve. Who Abraham and his family represent. God will provide a substitute to die so his people can live. This is why Jesus in the New Testament is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then think finally, let me finish this drawing. Think of the old man, the father, with his beloved son. Picture God himself the greater father bringing his own beloved son, the greater Isaac, up the mount in Jerusalem. But for God's son, there was no substitute provided because Jesus was the substitute. And for God's son, the hand of the slayer wasn't held back. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The events of Genesis 22, friends, are not about human moral wrangling. They're about God revealing to humankind the heart of his love, his gospel, 
just how far he will go to provide for your deepest need. When humanity failed in the great test that was the gift of life, which following Adam and Eve we all have, God decided that he will provide a substitute to die so we can live. And that substitute was God's own son, whom he loved, his Isaac. What lesson should we draw from this? I think if we were to draw a lesson, and there are many we could talk about, but we would want to consider, and I close with this, just what it is that divine testing is really meant to do in your life. It seems that Genesis 22 shows us that God's ultimate test for us is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves, in a sense, to the loss of all earthly hope, but not to crush us. God removes this cup of earthly joys so he can take us to this fount of living water and teach us to drink even though our palates are so sick and so hardened over. He withholds bread so that we learn that man does not live by bread alone. He withholds a cup of earthly gladness to teach us how to drink from the divine fellowship. At times, even, God withholds the breath of life to show us how he provides eternal life. I mean, that's the real test, isn't it? Your dying hour this was it, this is all I get, or I will pass through a very thin veil and I will hear forever, Jehovah Jireh, he provides. Friends, is it not the case that often when we have to lose so much in order to find God, that it is in finding God that we realize he is he's what we have actually been thirsting for all along? When God tests you, dear friends, trust that he does so in order to prove to you that he can and will provide. Abraham came down from the mountain the same way he went up, together with his son. But surely he was changed forever. And if the poet were summing up this scene, understanding how it pointed to a day when God's own son would be resurrected from the dead and he'd be reunited with his father on the mountain in Jerusalem, I think if the poet was summing it up, She might say, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And as we close our sermon series on Abraham, I can't help but picture him on that mount that is carved of jewels, glistening in the new Jerusalem, standing there with his son. An event has passed between this father and son that few mortals would understand, this event in Genesis 22. But there is one in heaven who understands, before whom these two mortals do bow. The great father with his greater Isaac, the only begotten son who for the sake of God's children was taken up Mount Moriah and slain. And Abraham would leave us church with a single and abiding cry. Oh, dear people of God, trust in the name Jehovah Jireh. He will provide. He will provide. On the mount of the Lord, he will provide. Lord, we thank you for Abraham and that by Jesus we can call ourselves his children. 
And we ask for the gift of his faith. What a miracle it would be. God, do it in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.